Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, it has been a very uh, tumultuous day here in the Lower Mainland. If you're down on the downtown east side, it has definitely been something that has raised eyebrows because today, as I'm sure you've been listening on this fine station all day, uh, has been the final straw, if you will. Vancouver Police Department down on the east side accompanying those who are uh, putting tents in garbage cans that are packing up people and saying, well, we might have a space for you tonight in a shelter Don't know how long we'll have it for you, but uh, at least there's a plan for you to get there for tonight. So this is the challenge that our city faces with the safe injection sites nearby. um, You know, a a populace of our city right now that really doesn't know where home is. And many questions that hopefully we'll get some answers to on this show this afternoon. Sarah Blythe is an advocate for the downtown east side. She's also the executive director for the Overdose Prevention Society. And she is kind enough to join me on this day. Sarah, good afternoon. Hi. Hi. How are you? Well, I'm okay. I'm a little concerned because I am a guy that used to work down in that neighborhood. And I know that a lot of that, aside from the fact that it is an eyesore and that this tent city, quote unquote, did at some point need to dissipate. I don't feel that this was the right approach. How do you feel? Well, there's, you know, I work with, you know, a lot of with and around and partner with many organizations on the two blocks. Um, the overdose prevention site, the emergency hub, the downtown east side market. Um, I work with a lot of the, you know, we see up to 900 people a day. So we see a lot of the people that are homeless. Uh, so we know their story, how they ended up homeless. Um, and uh, and also, where, where are they going? You know, some someone told me that they heard that um, uh, they saw people walk by in Strathcona looking to go back to Strathcona to, to camp. Um, people are going to Chinatown right now. Uh, it seems like there's not really a, a really a plan that people know about that's um, significant in terms of telling people where to go tonight. So that's, you know, mainly one of the issues that I have is that we have had to shut down our front entrances. Where are people going? People are overdosing. We've had to deal with a few that are out in the street today and we don't know where everybody is um so we we really hope to limit this kind of disruption because it really is uh, it can be dangerous for the people that we are dealing with and also when it's hostile you know just being an observer today um <clears throat> when it's hostile like this um you know it puts people in that are really uh, at their wits end uh, being homeless in, in extreme conditions, without money, without housing, without, you know, even a washroom, things like that. It puts people, you know, that are already stressed out to the max, and it just puts them over the, the edge. And, and when you've got police there and they're 
pushing forward and you know it, it's really unnerving to think that something you know something could happen where um you know some big blowout could happen it's kind of you're just sitting there anticipating uh the worst and hoping that you know people that you know um, don't get you know something ter- you know something terrible happens. To One them. of the so, things, Sarah, that I, I I went down there today for about twenty minutes, half an hour, just walked around in the areas that they would allow me to walk and mm-hmm. talked with a couple of different people, some that I actually knew from my different career before I got into this industry. Yeah. And one of the things that came across from almost everybody was the lack of communication. And you can sit here and we can all talk about the you know Ken Sim factor, the Adam Palmer factor, previous governments. Where's Christy Clark? Where's you know. Uh, insert mayor's name here over the mm-hmm. last several years. But the reality is, is one problem that I think we face is that communication never made it down to ground zero. And that's a part of the reason that so many people today aren't just in shock that they've technically lost their home, but there's no communication as to what's next. Yeah, well, that's mainly, I mean, I, I think everybody, including the campers, can agree that, um, you know, better places to go, to stay, to, you know, to get clean, to eat, like, like to wash up and things like that um, <clears throat> are necessary. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, it's kind of a game of whack-a-mole unless you have something that's really significant in place. In the past, uh, you know, with decampments, you've had like a list of housing places for people to go and people walking them over. And I, not that it didn't exist today, but I didn't see it. I wasn't able to really see that. So I'm not really sure what the plan is, but I did see people in Chinatown and the galley and, you know, people are going and they're leaving, but I don't know if they're going very far. Sarah, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. I just want to maybe get into the mind of somebody who's had their home removed from Hastings today, because I I mean, I can sit here and and talk about it saying that I walked down there for 20 minutes, whoop-de-doo. Walk me through the mind of somebody who may actually live there, and we're looking at about quarter after three here in Vancouver. The sun's going to set in a couple of hours. What are they thinking right now? Um. Well, I can, I mean, definitely from talking to people, it's just, it's just another traumatic situation on top of everyone else. My concern is that they're displaced and, you know, they're not, have nowhere to go and that it's, that they're, you know, maybe using drugs and they may use it in an unsafe manner and not have, you know, an idea, like, because it's been hard to get into the overdose prevention sites today and um, that they may, you know, use alone and things like that. So I'm, I'm always concerned just about, um, about people and living through the day and the more stress and trauma involved um, without a direction of where to go. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. I, I think that people shouldn't be intense. And, and I, and I, um, you know, I think it's dangerous to, you know, in, in the fires and the propane tanks and everything else. I think it's been a, it's not a great situation, but we really, it's, it's really a worse situation when people are dispersed or they don't know where they're going or they, um, you know, have, no, you know what I mean? You're, or more, you, you know, they're going to use a loan or they're not around any services and things like that. So I think it's, it's, it's very distressing. Um, and, and it's um, distressing, I hope, uh, that, you know, with not enough reason to go anywhere. I think there needs to be a better plan on where folks are going to go if you're going to, because they're just really there, you know, someone mentioned that they saw someone sort of unpacking over there in Chinatown and, and it going back to Strathcona or to Crab Park. Um, I mean, they're not, not going to be homeless, even if they're in a shelter. Mm. So just a better plan for them. And, you know, 
Good points, Sarah. I appreciate your time, and yeah. I thank you for stopping by this afternoon. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what? Yeah. Just keep fighting the good fight, and hopefully we'll yeah. get some resolution to this soon. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, take care. Bye. Thank you, Sarah Blythe with the Overdose Prevention Society. I can tell you this uh, as a guy that's got a couple of people in the medical field in my family. I would imagine that tonight St. Paul's is going to be uh, having their ER filled up with people. Uh, I would imagine all the hospitals locally, even right out to New Westminster for those who can get there, are probably going to be looking for shelter and something to eat, which is going to put a stress on our medical system over the next couple of days as well. So yesterday we touched on it, uh, I think it was within minutes after I got on this fine show, that the Vancouver Canadians had been sold. And news of it came rather quickly, just days before the start of their season. And it makes perfect sense to me, and I think it made perfect sense to a lot of people, including the man that is kind enough to join me now, the chairman of the Vancouver Canadians Baseball Club, Jake Kerr. Jake, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon to you, Rob. It's weird in the uh, the news environment. i got to be on my best behavior here. <laughs> Me too. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, well, first and foremost, let's talk about this sale. How did it come together? Well, as I indicated yesterday, I, um, my partner Jeff Mooney and I uh, realized how old we are, and uh, we uh, we have had 15 great years of uh, uh, owning the Canadians, and uh, we uh, we started shopping around about a year and a half ago, saying, "So, how do we ensure that?" baseball in Vancouver continues uh, and that we find the right buyer. We had a number of uh, people kick some tires, but uh, it became obvious to us after a while looking at how baseball was evolving that the buyer we ended up with, uh, Diamond Baseball Holdings, was by far the the premier owner of minor league teams. So uh, that's how we got there. They, They already own 15 teams. I think we're number 16. And uh, we're very pleased to be associated with them. I always ask when somebody makes a big move in life, was there an epiphany moment? Was there a moment where you're sitting, be it by yourself or with your family, where you said, now is the time? Was there a specific moment in, in, in that instance for you? No, I don't think so. It was, it was really very evolutionary. We, we have, uh, you know, had a great relationship with the parks board and, and we've, you know, spent a lot of time and money on the stadium. It just sort of, I guess what I realized we needed to do something was when uh, the major leagues decided that the facilities for players had to be dramatically improved. And I mean, we're talking dramatic here. Uh, And we looked, Jeff and I looked at each other and said, well, you know, that may be our exit cue because uh, to invest the type of capital that would have been required by us at our ages, you know, we have no successors in our families. So I, I think that was probably the, the biggest clue we had that it was time to start looking. And you talk about Nat Bailey Stadium. It is one of those things that you almost don't want to tweak too much for fear that it will lose its intimacy. But the reality is, is with Major League Baseball's increased expectations of these venues, there are going to be some things that have to change. What are some of those things? Well, we're lucky at Nat Bailey. Major League Baseball examined our operation very closely as they did with others. And they realized quite quickly that we were sort of like the Fenway or Wrigley of, uh, of minor league baseball. So you won't see any changes to the, uh, the external uh, look of the stadium or, uh, or, or the fan experience. What you will see is a, a large 
uh, wellness and training facility down the right field line where we currently have the picnic area, uh, but it will be replaced in time with a a new, much more modern uh, and effective picnic area that will be on the roof of the building. It's a big building. It'll take up the entire picnic area, uh, and um, it'll have a, a lot of amenities on the roof. We're not we're not going to announce that until we get our plans uh, fully together this summer, but uh, it'll be a, a great improve. Well, great improvement to the fan experience. I mean, to be honest with you, I love the picnic area, but uh, you can't really see the game very well from there. Maybe the people don't care, but they're going to be up in a situation where you've got great line line of sight on the game. Uh, we hope to have you know bars and food and beverage and stuff on the roof, so it should be good. When anybody starts out, they always have a dream, a vision of what they want to accomplish. As you take a step back, you're not removing yourself completely. You're still going to remain as the chairman. But did you accomplish all of your goals? I think so, Rob. When we took over, we didn't know what we were doing, which is well known. Uh, but we we bought you know, an, what we thought was an iconic stadium in very bad disrepair. Uh, and uh, very little money had been spent in many years. They had no lease. Uh, and I think we really did achieve everything we'd hoped to do. We, Andy Dunn has been a spectacular operator for us uh, as our chief of operations and president. Uh, we won four championships. We uh, made, a, I think, a major uh, impression on the community with our charity work, particularly through my partner, Jeff Mooney, and the, the uh, Canadian Foundation. So, yeah, there wasn't a lot of bucket list stuff we had to get done. We felt we'd pretty well done it. And I had a few people ask me, will this affect the relationship with the Blue Jays? I know the answer to that, but I think it's better if they hear it from you. I would imagine that relationship's not going anywhere. It is not going anywhere. I mean, leave aside the fact that under the player development agreements that were signed a year and a half ago, uh, we have another eight and a half, nine years or something to go on our current agreement with the Blue Jays. Uh, So, no, absolutely not for the next 10 years. Uh, And keep in mind also that that Rogers owns the the Blue Jays. They have obviously made a big deal with Shaw recently. They want a major presence in B.C. So I I think it's going to be long-term. Well, I'm really happy that despite this is a, a bit of a bittersweet moment for you, but this ironically happens to be the year that you and Jeff get into the BC Sports Hall of Fame. I think it's a little poetic justice, if you will, that you make that final leap into uh, amongst the immortals in this province for all the work that you've done building baseball in this province. I'm so proud of everything that you accomplished, and I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk today. Thank you for doing this, Jake. Thank you, Rob. Pleasure always. Always a pleasure. Sure. Jake Kerr, the chairman of the Vancouver Canadians Baseball Club. Uh, I waxed poetically yesterday about it, but I will just get down to the brass tacks of it. Vancouver Canadians open up their season this week. Gone are the days of short season baseball where it was the middle of June. They open up on Friday, the 7th. So you can go to um, CanadiansBaseball.com, get your tickets for that game or some game in the near future. And what's cool about their schedule now is they do a week at home, then they go on the road for a week, and then they come back home for a week. So you can really now start to map out your schedule over the course of the summer and maybe go to a couple of games in a row and see a guy get hot at the right time or see one of the Blue Jays' top prospects. They announced their roster today, and I think they have nine 
of the top 30 prospects within the Blue Jays organization in Vancouver to start the season. That is a very big get. It used to be where you'd get one or two, maybe three, because it was short season, a couple of classifications down. But since they've gotten that bump upward, now you're starting to see all the big guns coming through Vancouver, which is a very, very cool thing. We mentioned a little bit earlier in the show that the minimum wage here in the province of British Columbia is going to increase to sixteen seventy-five per hour. Oh, by the way, I'm Rob Fayan for Jazz this week. <laughs> for those who are like, wow, Jazz, his voice got a little deeper. Um, it is good news for those who are looking for any, uh, I guess, help from the government. And the fact that it goes up uh, anywhere, what is it, just over a dollar, like maybe a buck ten, because it's fifteen sixty-five. It's going to go to sixteen seventy-five. Yes, to my grade ten math teacher, I say thank you because that is a dollar ten. That is the highest minimum wage of all provinces in Canada. Actually, equates to a six point nine percent increase which is consistent with inflation, so say those in the know. I'm joined by Suzanne Skidmore. She's the president of the BC Federation of Labour. Suzanne, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I I guess the the lowest hanging fruit question is, is this enough of a hike? Uh, Well, uh, you know, it's a great hike. I'm so glad that uh, the workers in British Columbia, uh, you know, are seeing uh, that government is following through on their commitment to uh, you know, make sure that the increases in the minimum wage were had uh, some ties to inflation, that that is, you know, that commitment to do that for workers is happening. Uh, you know, we know that BC's lowest paid workers have been through a lot. We've all been through a lot over the last few years. Uh, but these folks, uh, you know, really, really counting on government to step up and make sure that they didn't fall any further behind. Uh, and they deserve to know that the government has their backs on this. So, uh, there's still some more work to do. We at the Federation of Labor, as you probably know, uh, you know, we push for a living wage uh, to make sure that, um, you know, that the workers all across British Columbia are, are paid fairly and, and equitably and, and having a living wage that covers all workers. Uh, but this is a good step. And so we want to we want to celebrate it because it's going to make a big difference to people who are earning these wages in our province. Back in 2018, the minimum wage was 12.65, so it has been a three-dollar bump in the last five calendar years. Um, I think a lot of people will say, "Okay, well, that's great, but is it matching the inflation?" And that is the word that we're getting with that 6.9 percent increase. But to the average listener, myself included, some will say, "Well, that's a dollar an hour. That's forty dollars under the average work week. Is that truly going to match rising prices for food, rising prices for gas? I'm not trying to, you know, rain on this parade. The fact that we have the best minimum wage in Canada, but there could be more help. Is there any other avenues that maybe are on the horizon? Uh, look, I mean, there's lots of um, there's lots of things. We know that British Columbia is one of the most expensive places uh, in the whole entire country uh, to live, particularly. Um, you know, in the lower mainland and the, with all of the, diff- the variety of different things that make it really, uh, that make affordability and livability uh, challenging for folks. Um, so that's why every extra penny in people's pockets who need it the most counts, you know. So it is why, you know, we're making sure we're going to keep pushing uh, for living wages, for, uh, you know, livability measures, whether that's, you know, you know access to uh, affordable housing, access to childcare. You know, there's there's a whole list of things that people need to have good access to, um, you know, but ensuring that the lowest paid people in our province have 
you know, a bit more money in their pockets uh, that we know immediately goes back out into community and gets spent making sure that there is uh, more food on the table and that the, some of the bills can get paid. Uh, it is, uh, it's, a good, it's a good thing. One of the things, as a former restaurant owner myself, I used to have a restaurant at 12th and Granville, and one of the challenges that I faced is taxes. And, you know, it travels downhill, unfortunately. You have to raise prices on those that are dining. But it was also tough to make ends meet when it came to staffing. Is there something that maybe the government can do on the other side of the coin? Instead of just the ten hike on the, you know, the person working, is there something that maybe is on the horizon where we can see some deflation and maybe allow that to become... Uh, a more level playing field. Uh, well, I, you know, I mean, I, I I'm sure, I, I'm sure that uh, there are folks who could answer uh, that question specifically. I'm not in government, but uh, you know, I, we do know um, that the reality is that most businesses, uh, particularly small businesses, are actually paying more than the minimum wage already. They're paying uh, closer to a living wage, and they're also providing other benefits uh, like extended health and. Uh, dental and things like that to their employees already, um, you know, because uh, because they already do that. But the you know the the folks who are the lowest paid workers in British Columbia are there's still a lot of them, uh, and that money goes directly back into the community. It goes back into those small businesses. It goes back into corner stores and grocery stores and uh, and restaurants. And uh, you know, it's it's not getting saved up in bank accounts or in offshore <laughs> accounts or anything like that. Uh, it literally gets spent in community probably uh, you know, quicker than it gets into their bank accounts in most cases. Yeah, I definitely think today's news is a good news story. And um, I'm happy to see it taking effect on June the 1st, which means that there is some relief on the horizon. Suzanne, I thank you for doing this today. And I'm sorry if I threw you that curveball about what can be done on the government side, but I'm just yeah. trying to think of any way possible to try and save a buck here in 2023. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of things at play. We know uh, we know that it, it's everything is expensive. Everything's going up. There is some work that's going to need to be done, uh, you know, on government side, and we're going to help you know help keep pushing. Uh, but today, you know, working people in British Columbia have won the highest minimum wage of any of the provinces, um, and that's because workers came together and spoke in a united voice about this, and that makes their lives better, and it makes life fairer for for a lot of people in this province. So thanks for thanks for talking about the issue because it really is an important one. It's great, and thank you for shining light on it. Suzanne Skidmore, wow. President of the BC Federation of Labor. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, a very tumultuous day downtown on the downtown east side. We have been covering it pretty much since the story broke at about 9 this morning that uh, the VPD... Uh, we're cooperating with a number of different entities to go down uh, pretty much to Main and Hastings and clear a couple of blocks west of said intersection. And obviously there is a, uh, you know, it's a very tough time for a number of people down on the east side that tonight aren't sure where they're going. Some are going to shelters, some are going to set up somewhere in the neighborhood, but there's a lot of uncertainty. So in order to get to the crux of this, we thought it'd be great to bring on Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, who's kind enough to join us this afternoon. Chief, good afternoon. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, and I always think it's better to get it from the proverbial horse's mouth. So let's talk about the hours leading up to what actually happened today. Can you walk me back maybe 48 hours, 72 hours? How did this decision get made, and when did you guys finally say that today was going to be the day? 
Well, this actually dates back a long, you know, a lot longer than 48 hours or 72 hours. So it goes back to, you know, a number of months now where we've been seeing a steady deterioration in the downtown east side and, you know, increase in violence, very disturbing events, uh, increase in fires, buildings that have caught fire, tents that have caught fire. And it's created a very, very dangerous environment down there. So it was kind of an iteration over time. I know the city of Vancouver has been down there working with, uh, you know, the folks in the tents for a long period of time. And many people were housed, but there was a, a group of people that uh, were still persistent and didn't want to leave. And it was just becoming untenable due to the high levels of danger and fire risk and assaults and stabbings and shootings and things like that. So the city of Vancouver made a decision that they were going to um, go forward with the chief's uh, fire chief's fire order and have those tents and structures removed. So we're assisting the city of Vancouver in that. It's, it's engineering and the fire department taking the lead on um, actually removing structures and things like that, but VPD is there to keep the peace. When did you find out that Tuesday was going to be the day? Well, we've been talking about this, like I say, for months, and there's been regular meetings that have been going on throughout that entire period of time with uh, VPD, fire department, city, the province has been involved. So all, all of the players that you would expect talk about this on a regular basis. So it's not something that's just uh, popped up out of the blue. It's It's been a going concern for many months. I think the reason that I ask for the time frame is because a lot of people on the downtown east side are saying that the communication hasn't been as strong as it needed to be. And I think if you've had those months, maybe the communication could have been stronger. And I'm not going to pin that specifically on the police department, but if you've got all of these entities coming together and yet the communication is still scuffling, I got to wonder where maybe that breakdown happened. Yeah, no, I'll tell you, actually, um, I know for a fact that the communication has actually been very good and you, you will get a certain narrative painted by people from different perspectives. And, and I appreciate that. But I know for a fact that in particular, the uh, community services group from the city of Vancouver is, is down there on a daily basis talking to people. And there's been really good communication with people on the street, as well as uh, the engineering and sanitation folks who were down there. So there's day-to-day contact with people down uh, down in the uh, encampment. So they knew, A, that you were coming, and B, that where they should go once you guys get there? No, we didn't give people uh, a lot of details about, you know, exact dates and times that we were coming. But as far as, like, where people are going, um, the city of Vancouver and the province have had lots of discussions on that. The city has got the lead on that, not the police department, of course, because we don't oversee housing or shelter or anything like that. So that's not really our area of responsibility. But I know the city, um, you know, is looking after support services, uh, shelter space and different housing options for some folks that are left down there. I appreciate the candidness. And um, I guess my next question is optics, because I think a lot of people are going to watch the six o'clock news tonight and they're going to see a bunch of, you know, members from the VPD down there. And it's going to look a little jarring, a little daunting to see them walking, you know, down westbound from Maine and Hastings towards all of these uh, encampments. How were they on the ground today? I don't know if you've gotten any direct feedback, but have you ha- have you heard anything as far as the um, communication with these people that were in the tents? Uh, have you heard anything back from any of your members today? Yeah, so I can give you a bit of an update on that. So just for your you know for your listeners' information, just to give some context. So I mean, the reason that we do have to have police down there accompanying the city is because it is very violent. It is untenable, as I mentioned, and you know over the past while we've seen an increase in. In weapons with knives and bear spray, handguns, shotguns, people have been stabbed. We had a person in a wheelchair stabbed. We had a homicide down there. We've had shootings. 
sexual assaults, robberies, uh, buildings have caught on fire due to the proximity of the tents to buildings. We've had a large number of tents that have caught fire. People have been injured. Uh, we've had people throwing lighter fluid onto tents, trying to set them on fire, which luckily was uh, thwarted before that could happen. Um, batteries, lithium batteries from chop shops, from e-bikes that have exploded. Uh, firefighters that have been chased around. Uh, ambulance attendants that have been shot with BB guns. Police officers shot with BB guns. 19 police officers assaulted. An officer hit in the head with a pipe that led to an officer-involved shooting previously. So that's kind of the context building up to it, why you need police there, because it's not safe for city workers to go in there alone. But then to your direct question about what we've experienced today, I will say that actually most of the people um, residing in the tents have actually been pretty cooperative. We haven't had really much resistance from them. There has been resistance, though, from uh, some of the activist groups and protesters down there. So... What we've seen there is we have seen people throwing debris out from uh, second story windows down to officers and city workers down in the street. We did have somebody throw a wrench at uh, police officers. We had a report of a man with a gun uh, in his waistband. And when we contacted that person, they had a replica gun tucked into their waistband that looked like a real gun. We had somebody throw hot coffee on police officers. We had somebody set off a fire extinguisher down there. So that just kind of gives you a bit of the context of um, some of the things we're facing down there. So my final question for you is we've heard on this station this afternoon from some of the people on the ground that, yeah, they're going to leave tonight, but they're coming back. So from your perspective, from a policing perspective, what changes? I mean, you've done this sweep today. You've put a lot of stuff into the trash compactors. But let's say 48 hours from now, we start to see some of these people making their way back to their quote unquote home. What changes from your perspective? Well, for starters, I'll just correct you there that the police haven't put anything in trash compactors. So the city of Vancouver is dealing with any kind of, you know, debris or um, helping people with their belongings down there. And they actually have storage capabilities to help people with that if they're not able to take their items with them. So uh, no actions uh, like that by police. But as far as a longer term strategy, the city does have a plan that we're working with them to uh, provide some sustainability down there. So we don't see these popping up and we're going to be uh, present with the city as they enforce their fire bylaw and uh, street and traffic bylaw down there. So we'll be assisting them in the weeks to come just to maintain order down there and make sure everybody's safe. So no ticketing, no fines. It's just a, I guess it's a case by case scenario. Yeah, generally speaking, I'll just say over the years, like ticketing doesn't work well in neighborhoods like the downtown east side. I mean, you're dealing with folks that are marginalized, don't have a lot of money, uh, inability to pay. It, ticketing is just not a generally a good option when you're dealing with uh, folks that uh, in those situations. Okay. I appreciate you making the time for this us this afternoon. I just wanted to make sure that everybody had the proper context as we get into our final hour of the show. So thank you for the time. You're welcome. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.